Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really pleased this week to have Dan Jarvis, MBE, MP, who is the Member of Parliament for Barnsley Central. And on the 9th of May, he just handed over as the Mayor of South Yorkshire, a very prestigious role. Dan has had a fascinating life thus far, uh, which I recommend you read or listen to, in my case, his book, Long Way Home, which is a fascinating story and really captures what we need in our politicians today, which is the motto of serve to lead, that which he learned at Santa some 25 years ago. Uh, Dan uh, served with distinction in the parachute regiment and also in some very tough conditions alongside the special forces. So great deal of respect and I take my hat off to him. Dan, lovely to have you on the series and welcome. My pleasure, thank you. Okay, so Dan, let's begin uh, telling us about you know your current role as a member of parliament it's a tough one and also you were you were double hatting as the mayor of south yorkshire T- tell us a bit about what you're doing at the moment and then we'll go back to early life and some of that story well i'm just a few days on from having been the mayor of south yorkshire very unusually i was also a member of parliament at the same time we didn't have a devolution arrangement agreed in south yorkshire So I decided that I was going to step forward and and try and create an arrangement between national and local government. That was quite a difficult thing to do. It required a lot of patience, a lot of effort, a lot of working with different people around the country. But we got that devolution deal agreed uh, in South Yorkshire. And I think politicians often feel very, find it very difficult to let go of power. And lots of people, I think, were very surprised that I took the decision not to seek re-election as the mayor. But I'd always said that doing the two jobs in the way that I had wasn't a long-term arrangement. And when I said it, I meant it. So I think it was the right thing to do to set the the mayoral uh, devolved arrangement up, unlock the potential of it, get it delivering, get it making a difference, but then also at the right moment, step back and hand it over from somebody to somebody else and, and let them get on and doing it. So my primary focus now is on being a member of parliament. Yeah, and it is an interesting point you make. There's a fascinating book called Strongman Leadership, which is about Xi Jinping, uh, Erdogan, uh, Orban, um, and, and, and various people like Putin who hang on to power when they should have Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, when they should have handed it over. And so I take my hat off to you for not being so, such a, a megalomaniac and hanging on to it, but doing a good job and handing it over with a, a nice handover letter and, and things like that to your successor. Many people don't have the, the gratitude and the grace to do that. So uh, well done you. And, and tell us about, you know, Barnsley Central. I mean, Barnsley means a lot to you and your upbringing and your parents were both Labour activists. You're a Labour MP and uh, you were recommended to be on this series by someone that we both respect a lot, uh, Richard Dannett, General the Lord Dannett. Who, who speaks very highly of you as a politician uh, with integrity and with values that you live by and you constantly striving to better yourself and, and, and deserve 
the trust that people put in you. But tell us a bit more about what you're doing right now for Barnsley Central. Mm. Well, I think above all else, above all else, I, I'm doing my best because I think people deserve an MP who's going to work incredibly hard, who's going to commit to the fight on their behalf and do everything that they possibly can to improve their lives. I, I completely recognise and understand there is a lot of cynicism about politics and about politicians. I was elected in a parliamentary by-election that was triggered because my, um, my, my predecessor fell foul of the expenses regime and that triggered a by-election. So I stepped forward at a time where a lot of people locally had very little faith in politicians and politicians. And I wanted to show them, I wanted to demonstrate that I could be trusted, that I would give my all and work as hard as I possibly could for my constituents. I think a bit like the previous life, the previous professional life that I'd had in the army, serving in politics, it, it, it isn't a normal job. You know, it is a way of life that consumes all of you if you allow it to. And I remember very clearly the first day that I arrived in Parliament, somebody came over to me and gave me what was a very curious bit of advice really around recognizing that, that serving in politics, being a member of parliament was only really a part-time job. Now, I think that was a very old fashioned view because the reality of it is it is seven days a week. It is very early in the morning. It is very late at night. And there are some real questions about how you can kind of carve out some space away, away from that. But, mm. but what I try to do is give it everything that I've got. I think my constituents deserve somebody working for them who takes it very seriously. And I do, the responsibility of me being a member of parliament, I think is something that deserves to be taken seriously. And that's what I do. Mm. And, and you raise a really good point, Dan, that seven days a week, it, it's, it's a full on calling. So I think you and I talked about this before, it's a vocation uh, and it's not just a job. It's much more than that, if you take it seriously. And my concern is that I think a number of people, and we don't need to point fingers, but we all know the kind of people we're seeing in the news over the last few years, have seen this as a means to an end for their own ego, uh, rather than serving the country. And they uh, play fast and loose with people. And we're not that stupid, we pick it up. Um, though populism seems to be the, the big thing these days. Um, your book, uh, A Long Way Home, which is a superb read, I, I really congratulate you on that. And I think we mentioned I'm dyslexic, so I listened to the audiobook and I, 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 you know, I just found it riveting. I just wanted to follow it through. Firstly, I'm really sorry about the, uh, the death of your, your, your first wife, Caroline, to cancer. I mean, that was grim. And, but it's now so lovely that you and Rachel are married and that you've got um, uh, three children now, which is, which is great. But uh, tell us a, a little bit about, you know, this is a, this is an inspiring leadership podcast and you were recommended by Richard Dan. He is very selective in who he considers to be inspirational. Uh, you were one. And um, Soldier in the Sand is, is a book written by another general who's also going to be on here, who he found inspiring too. So what was it that helped you become an inspiring leader? Accepting you don't have to say, no, no, I'm not. People say you are. So what was it that you learned along the way? You had parents who brought you up, strong values and beliefs, good labor activists, but then you went into the military with all its uh, bigotry, I suppose, at times and, and class structures. Uh, you and I experienced that. 
your suit was commented on being from M&S. I think mine was from Burton's and it was brown. And I happened to serve with the Scots Guards. They went, no, no, my boy, that won't do. Here, let's take you to a tailor and get you a proper suit. Uh, and of course, I was, I was at a, a grammar school in Halifax and you were at a comprehensive in, in Barnsley. I seem to remember it's Barnsley College. So uh, you experienced all that, but, but who shaped you? What events, if you to think of just a couple, because the, the book itself is, is, you've got to read the whole lot. But if you were to pick out a couple of events that shaped you as the leader you are today, who and what were they, Dan? Well, I think to an extent, we're all products of our environment. So I guess growing up, I had a sense of public service, uh, a sense of duty. I mean, I was talking about this the, the, the other day when I, I visited a local scout troop. Uh, and it's quite a long time ago now, but I was in the Cubs and then in the Scouts. And actually being a part of that organisation and at quite an early age, being given a leadership role within the Scouts, I think got me thinking about how you get on with people and how you get difficult things done. Mm. But I think that the golden thread for me through all of this is, is public service. It is about duty. Now, for some people, those are quite old fashioned concepts, but I, I believe in them. It's how I live my life. It's why I joined the army. I joined the army because I wanted to make a contribution. I wanted to do something that I thought was worthwhile and gave me the opportunity to serve. A set of circumstances meant that I couldn't continue doing it. So I needed to look for something else that would give me that same opportunity to get up in the morning and to go to work to do something that I thought was worthwhile and shaped my bit of the world uh, for, for the better. And I, I genuinely think that although serving in the military was pretty challenging and it certainly had its moments and politics is, is not an easy way to live your life either, I actually consider myself to be really privileged, privileged to have the opportunity to serve, privileged to get up in the morning and do something that I think is worthwhile. And I, I don't take that for granted every single day. And particularly when I walk into the House of Commons, I walk into this place and think, wow, you know, I've got the opportunity to, to serve my constituents, make the most of it. And, and that, is, that is the code, if you like, that is the ethos by which I approach every single day. Mm. That I'm privileged, privileged and lucky to have the opportunity to serve and that I should seek to make the most of it. Yeah, that, that, that really resonates strongly for me. And if only we had more politicians like you, I'd be much happier. Particularly, I'd love a prime minister with those kind of values. That would be exceptional. Um, but just thinking about um, inspiring leadership and, and what it means, your interpretation of it, Dan, you know, when you've worked for some inspiring leaders, uh, you worked for Mike Jackson, who's been on this show, and you worked for Richard Danner, who's been on this series as well. Um, and others that you've served with both in the military and maybe you've met one or two in, in politics. What, what would you uh, uh, think would make a woman or a man into an inspiring leader in your, in your values? Well, it's, it's perhaps a comment on our political system that as you asked me that question, I find my mind automatically going back to my previous life and instinctively thinking about people that I served alongside in the, in the armed forces, who in many cases were inspiring, not least because they were having to fulfill leadership roles under the most testing of circumstances. Mm. You know, if you're a relatively junior commander in Afghanistan, 
you're under a huge amount of pressure. You're having to make difficult decisions, not once a day, but potentially many times a day. And then you've got to do it the next day and then the next week and the, and the next month. I do think perhaps as a, as a bit of a defense of the, of the political classes, um, I think it is worth referencing the fact that in President Zelensky, um, we, we have a, a genuinely inspiring political leader. I mean, the, the job that he's doing as president of Ukraine under the most exceptionally difficult circumstances, I think is extraordinarily impressive. And I think there's, there's something about his character. I think there is something about the integrity with which he leads that country. I think it's something about the spirit, the fact that he's able at this most difficult time to demonstrate huge courage, moral and physical in a lead, leadership role, I think is deeply impressive and inspiring. So I think there, there are plenty of examples of people both in the private and the public sector who, who are doing amazing things. I, I mean, I think you, you, you made an interesting comment about the prime minister and I, I think most people expect and hope that the person who leads our country will behave with integrity and will demonstrate the values and standards that would be expected of that office. And I, th I think that that is what our country deserves. And I think all of us who serve in politics, I think that we have a responsibility to demonstrate to the public that we are there to serve, that we have their best interests at, at heart, that we're in it, not for what we can get out of it, but what we can put into it. And certainly that, that is the approach that I always seek to take. Yeah, and, and I think back to Richard set up the, the covenant, the military covenant, this that, you know, you and I and others would serve in the forces and we could potentially give our lives and colleagues of ours were killed. Or like my father, he, he was killed flying for the fleet air arm when I was uh, two and a half, he was killed. Um, so that's the, on the one hand. On the other hand, that will be looked after by the country. And so there's almost that covenant, that, that understanding. And I cannot think of military leaders I've served alongside who would have been found so wanting as the prime minister currently is and would have stayed in their position as a general or a commanding officer, they would have resigned instantly. It wouldn't have even been a question. Uh, and so I, I don't need you to reply, but I just, I'm so disappointed that the standards that we deserve, people say you get the politicians you deserve. I think we deserve much better than we've got at the moment. And for various reasons, people are putting up with a situation which is not acceptable and they, they've lowered the standards. Um, on, the, on the topic of Ukraine, uh, I, I asked Richard before the invasion what he thought would happen. He, he made a punt and he thought he was just, they were saber rattling and trying to unravel NATO. Uh, and actually they went in and they invaded. Uh, what, how do you think this will play out? I mean, I know who's one to guess, you know, with someone like Putin, you don't know and all that goes on and Mashkarovka and their deception, they'll say one thing and do another. Uh, you as, a, as a, a man who's politically astute and also militarily aware, what do you think will tend to happen? Well, I think that is the $64,000 question. And if you talk to lots of different experts in lots of different fields, I think they are mostly left scratching their heads because the truth of the matter is nobody knows for certain. I think there is widely an acknowledgement that this is a this is a critical moment for, 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 for not just for European security, but for global security. And the stakes of all of this are incredibly high. 
And of course, other countries, China, but other countries as well, are looking very closely at the outcome of the conflict in Ukraine. So I think that as a country, we have a responsibility to do everything that we can to support our allies in Ukraine. I think we've got to provide every material support that we are able to do. I think we've got to make sure that the sanctions are biting in a way that puts additional pressure on Putin and those who continue to serve him within Russia. But the truth of the matter, like many conflicts, the outcome of it is uncertain. And we'll have to wait and see where we get to. But certainly, this is a, this is a hugely worrying situation that we find ourselves in. Mm. We're obviously living with the knock-on effects of it in terms of the, the pressure on prices in this country as a result of a number of, of complex factors. So this is a very challenging time for international security. And it is precisely the moment that I think we do need to see outstanding leadership from political leaders right across the international community. I think in some cases we, we, we've seen that, but but not yet in others. But I am, as a natural optimist, I, I'm hopeful um, that the right outcome uh, will will be arrived upon. But of course, there are no guarantees that, that, that that's where we'll get to. So like everybody else, I'm, I'm just waiting and hoping that we will get to, to a better place and that, that Ukraine and all of their incredible efforts, you know, the character, the determination, the courage, that they are displaying that ultimately that that will prevail yeah no it, it's very true and and i think taking you know you just traveled from westminster you're now back in barnsley where you're the mp of barnsley central um going from the macro the big you know global challenges china will they then attack taiwan you know what are the other interesting for these these strongmen leaders who think they can throw their weight around and no one will hold them accountable uh, sounds a bit like uh, some certain politicians, doesn't it? But it, when we take it much uh, more closely to home for you in Barnsley Central, when you go around and you were recently helping others in, in the, uh, the local elections, but when you go around and see people, this is the, the, the economic circumstances are causing a lot of pain. What If you were to just tell briefly a couple of stories of what you're seeing, how it's affecting people on the ground, the, the energy you know, growth and the cost of living and everything else. What's it really, what's it really like for people who you're meeting? Times are really tough at the moment. I mean, I'm having countless conversations every single week with people, including many people who are in work, who are genuinely struggling to heat their homes and feed their families at the moment. And people are having to make really, really difficult decisions about family expenditure. These are decisions that I didn't expect people would have to make at, at, at this particular moment in our history. These were, I thought, decisions that have been consigned to the past. But the reality is, I think for, for many people across the country, they face a, a perfect storm. The cost of living crisis is biting very deeply in terms of the cost of domestic energy prices, fuel, you know, the cost of people being... Uh, able or not able to, to, to fill up their cars it is really incredibly challenging. So these are very tough times. And I think government has an absolute responsibility to look at what it can do to alleviate some of those financial pressures on households across the country. And I think I have to say, you know, I think the government's been quite slow. You've got CEOs from major companies saying that the government need to look at a windfall tax to look at ways in which they can 
alleviate the financial pressures on, on working families. And I think the government will get to that place, but it seems to be taking a long time to get there. So undoubtedly, these are really tough times. And I think government has a huge responsibility to, despite everything that we've been through, of course, the impact of COVID has been incredibly costly in terms of the impact that that's had on the public purse. But we've gone from a public health crisis now into an economic crisis. And I think government needs to pull all of the levers at its disposal to try and alleviate that pressure, which undoubtedly people are facing. Yeah, well, I think we're very lucky to have someone like you in politics who understands about difficult times, dark moments and some tough decisions, because in a way, any leader, whether you're a CEO in business that I tend to work with and coach, uh, or whether you're a politician, you're, the thing you make is decisions. You have to make decisions and they have to be the best decisions in some very gray circumstances where nothing is really clear. And this is where it comes back to the moral compass and integrity and doing the right thing rather than doing things right. Um, you, you've had some dark moments, just like these are dark moments for some of the families, but in a very different way. Would you perhaps share, you know, your darkest moment and, and what you've learned from it in your life and how it's helped you become in some rather strange way, a better leader because of the difficult time you've been through. And then we'll talk about a prouder moment after that. I think the toughest times professionally were in Afghanistan. The, the summer of 2007 was an incredibly difficult time to be in Afghanistan. The level of threat there was incredibly high and British soldiers were being killed around us every single day. It was the toughest of moments. Uh, and the, the reality of the situation there was you got up each or you woke up each morning, not certain that you would make it to the end of the day. For me personally, this was made much more difficult because of a number of other factors. So my wife, back in the UK, she'd been really quite ill with cancer. And I'd had this huge dilemma about whether I should have gone to Afghanistan in the first place. But as a consequence of conversations that she and I had, we decided that we wanted to have some sense of a normal life. And normal life for us was me going off to do those things. So I went off and, and did those things, but I found myself there very worried about my family full of self-doubt to begin with about whether it was the right thing for me to do what I was doing. But also there was this sense that I wasn't properly prepared for it because another set of circumstances meant that I'd arrived quite late on in terms of the cycle. Um, so, so the company that I was in command of had already arrived and I hadn't done all of the pre-deployment training with them. So I was helicoptered into the desert and I walked off the back of the, the helicopter and I was met with a, 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 a cheery smile and a, a warm handshake and then soon after um, with, with a hot brew. But I remember that first night being in the desert, sort of lying under the stars, you know, wondering what I got myself into and whether I'd done the right thing and filled with self-doubt. And, and that was quite a difficult position to be in. And I just had to accept that I was there and that I needed to somehow make a success of it. You know, the stakes were so high my soldiers' lives were depending on me, and I had to be in a frame of mind to make those difficult decisions and to get all of those judgment calls right. So I quite quickly had to snap into a mindset of knowing that I had to be very focused on the job in hand. And difficult though it was, I had to get on with it. And, and that's what I did. And then I think when I embraced that challenge, in a funny way, and it was, it was the most 
professionally satisfying thing that I've ever done because I was part of a team of people in whom I had complete trust. My life was in their hands, their, ha their lives were in my hands. And we got on and we worked very closely together. And yes, it was tough. And every single day there were huge challenges and there was fear and there were dangers and all these difficult things. But somehow we stuck with it and we found a way through it and we got to the other side. And I think I learned a huge amount from that experience. Yeah, well, well, well done, Dan. I mean, deep respect. When I read about it and understood it and having served myself, knew just what you were going through. Not exactly like you, but I just deep respect for that. And from, from the tougher times, and, and I'm really sorry that your wife, uh, Caroline, eventually did die of cancer. And, and that was a long, drawn out, painful experience. Going from that tough time to a prouder, happier moment in your life and what you learned from that, what would you pick out as one of your proudest, happiest moments and, and what it taught you as a leader? Well, I think at the end of that particular deployment, the fact that we were able to get everybody back alive, I mean, that, that was the metric of success that I'd set myself, that despite the challenges, despite the huge risks, above all else, I wanted to get my soldiers back to St. Athen in South Wales alive. Now, every single day, you know, we were quite literally dicing with death, but all of my soldiers, made it back to the UK alive. And you know, that is something that I'm, to this day, extraordinarily proud of because that, that was the key priority. So I was very proud that we were able to do that. And I think I learned a lot from the process of trying to navigate through those, those, those very challenging days. But then I found myself you know, in, in another environment and in Parliament, uh, and there have been despite all of the frustrations and all of my time in the House of Commons has been sat on the opposition benches, but there are still things that you're able to do uh, and achievements that you're able to, um, uh, to, to, to rack up. And you know, I was incredibly fortunate that I had the opportunity to introduce uh, a law, a piece of legislation, specifically was around the issue of organ donation. And I was able to draw together cross-party support. So support from the government, support from uh, the opposition and from a range of different MPs from around the House. And we were able to, to pass a law which has saved countless lives. Uh, and I look back on that process and the collaboration that underpinned it with deep pride, not least because I know that the people are alive today that otherwise would not have been had we not been able to run that successful campaign. So proud of, of, of the service in Afghanistan uh, and the fact that we were able to, I think, make huge progress despite all of the difficult circumstances that we encountered. Also proud of, 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 of many of the things that I've been able to do in Parliament as well. Yeah, and no doubt in, in South Yorkshire and setting things up as the mayor. And in, in this one with organ donation, because I, you know, basically have said that if I die, I'm happy that, you know, my organs are harvested and save the lives of other people if they want uh, my, my bits and pieces. But in a layman's term, what was the essence of the law that you passed that is, makes it better than it was before? It, well, it was a very simple change. In layman's terms, it, it was about changing the assumption that people had opted in rather than opting out. So I, I've always believed very strongly in the importance of, of personal choice. So let me, let me commend you for, for, for what you've just said. Um, 
because I, I think it's an incredibly selfless thing that you've said that you've just done. And it's, I think it's the right thing. I, I have to say one of the most humbling experiences, uh, and actually, you know, I wouldn't consider myself to be an emotional person. Maybe it's, you know, the nature of the life that I, I, I've led, but I find it extraordinarily emotional and humbling talking to the families of people who've died often under very difficult circumstances who, despite the tragedy of the loss of a loved one, have somehow, from within, found the courage to take decisions, the most selfless decisions, about the donation of organs, which have then gone on to save countless people's lives. And I think that, that is such a kind of wonderfully decent, responsible and selfless thing that it just fills me with, with such humility. Mm. That is not to say, if people don't want to do that and, and, and they don't want to make that choice, then I'm very respectful of that as well, because it is very much about personal choice. Yeah. But I think it, it, it's perhaps you know, reflective of my values and this sense of responsibility and a hope of decency of wanting to do the right thing and wanting to help other, other people. Yeah. I just thought that here was a way in which, frankly, with very little effort, we could save hundreds of people's lives every single year so why not do it and it wasn't the easiest thing to do because not everybody was in favor of it but we built a coalition of the willing and we made it happen and i am full of pride to this day that we were able to do that now congratulations and i can't remember what one of the books was i think it was nudge or something like this where they just talk about these small incremental changes where you have the opt-in rather than the opt-out and it makes everything change. So I'm delighted by that uh, piece of legislation that you push through with. And you have to get this buy-in by people, otherwise it just doesn't happen. Um, thinking about your values, helping others, decency and things like that that you were brought up with. If you were to go back and see the young Dan Jarvis, age 16, knowing what you know now with all the experience and mistakes and wisdom and learning you've had, what bit of advice would you give? You know, you were giving the kids at Barnsley College there a, a, a talk yeah. at, at the end of their, their time there. But what bit of advice? This is this matters and this doesn't matter. That others who got young 16-year-olds would go, that's a good bit of advice from Dan. What, what advice would you give the young 16-year-old? There is a fascinatingly fine line between confidence and overconfidence, gusting to arrogance. Uh, and I think what I didn't know at 16 or 18, but do know, do know now, is the importance of, of, of self-belief, the importance of, of having a bit of a plan, thinking about how you're going to achieve it, and then sticking to your guns and getting on and working hard and making sure that you achieve what it is that you want to achieve. I remember when I was making the transition from the armed forces into politics, the opportunity arose to put myself forward to be the candidate here in Barnsley. And all the expert advice was don't do it. It'll never happen. You know, people will not choose you. You will not be selected as the candidate. It, you've got no chance. It just isn't going to happen. And I remember, and perhaps it was because of where I was in my life, you know, I had not so long before lost my wife. And I was very much of the view that, you know, life is for living. If there's an opportunity, go for it. But I listened to all of that advice, all of those sensible, sage people telling me that I wasn't going to do it. 
I listened carefully to all of their advice and I nodded and I ignored it. And it was the best thing that I've ever done because being the MP and having this opportunity to serve has been extraordinary. And if I had listened to their advice, if I'd taken it, I wouldn't be serving in the way that I am now. So I think there's something, particularly for younger people, where confidence is a big thing. You know, I have this with my own kids. I have lots of conversations with younger people now in the colleges and in the universities. Building and developing that sense of self, that self-belief that you can go on to achieve great things. And, and in particular, these are conversations I have you know, with people who you know, perhaps come from more economically deprived backgrounds who haven't had you know the benefit of outstanding education whose parents aren't necessarily high achievers and are maybe kind of sort of wondering about you know what are their limits going to be you know is university is you know outstanding careers you know is that something for them and what i always say to them is you know believe in yourself be ambitious aim high work hard and there is no reason why you can't go anywhere in the world and do anything that you want to do. Uh, that's fantastic and, and great advice. Um, let's go uh, on from there around the Inspiring Leadership Compass and the research that, that uh, my wife Lee and I did around what makes high-performing leaders and teams and we found these are, are pretty solid principles. Um, and really just some kind of quick fire responses from you. Uh, moral quotient, integrity, values, beliefs. What, what are your sort of top two or three values that you've been brought up with and you live by now as an MP and you find have served you well? Well, I'm a great believer that culture beats strategy. So mm -hmm. you can sit around a whiteboard and you can come up with all these amazing ideas. And it's important that you do have those kind of sort of sessions to come up with those ideas. But in the end, it's, it's about what you actually do, not what you actually say. I also think you have to, as a leader, you have to lead by example, serve to lead. That's the motto, as you referred to earlier on, of the Royal Military Academy Sanders. So I remember being told at a very early stage of my training, never ask anybody to do anything that you're not prepared to do yourself. So I think the way in which you lead the team, the way in which you demonstrate that, that moral compass, that leadership, that integrity. I think if you're able to do that, people will buy into that project. They'll want to be a part of it. They'll see that you really believe in what you're doing and that what you're doing is worthwhile and will make a difference. And I think that's an incredibly important part of being a leader. Yeah, no, spot on. Uh, thank you for that. Really resonates strongly for me. The next one round is PQ, meaning and purpose. It's almost like mission, vision. Um, but but you you and I spoke about this being, as a politician, being a vocation, a calling. Um, any more that you want to add about why you do the work you do? You talked about public service and duty, but I think that was well covered. But anything else you'd want to add about meaning and purpose in your life? I think it's 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 a great privilege to do something that you consider to be worthwhile, but also, also something that, that that you enjoy. You know, most of us are going to spend a lot of time at work. You know, many many years in the world of work. So I actually genuinely consider myself to be very lucky to do something that every day gives me that huge opportunity to make a difference. You know, I was talking earlier on about some of the things that I'm 
really proud of and, and, and some of the wins that I've been fortunate to have. But that little note that you get from an older person that you've helped, that you've made a difference to their lives, you know, the, the buzz that you get from receiving something like that is, 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 is absolute gold dust. And that's why I do what I do. I think the other thing that I would say though, and I guess that this is a lesson that I've learned previously, but employ in the job that I do today, it, it, it's very important to think about what it is that you are actually trying to do and actually trying to achieve, and then maintain a laser-like focus on that mission, that aim. You know, the military talk about selection and maintenance of the aim. And when you're busy, when you're doing other things, it's quite easy to get distracted and knocked off course. So being quite focused, sometimes single-minded, about working out what your objective is, how you're going to do it, and then don't let anything divert you from that course. Because, you know, the nature of the world that we live in, and certainly it's the case in politics and the military, and I'm sure in business as well, stuff happens, things get in your way, and it's quite easy to have your attention diverted. So being focused, what is the thing that you want to get done? How are you going to do it? And then get on and do it. No, beautifully put, beautifully put. And, and I think that laser-like focus on a mission and delivering on it is, is key. And that's what we want from our politicians. The next one round is health and well-being, brain health and physical health. Clearly, to get through P Company, as you and I did, uh, I was with James Bashel and we discussed uh, that. And another friend of mine, Dave Hudson, who ended up at Hereford, and uh, we're still all friends now. And we've all kept ourselves, uh, as we now reach 60, in good health. Uh, what are you doing to keep yourself in good mental and physical health? Because what you went through serving in Afghanistan under intense pressure on what is only can be described as a war that you were part of. You can, you can rename it and call it operations, but you were in war. Um, and uh, uh, many suffer from PTSD, uh, which, which haunts them some years later. Uh, you could easily have suffered from that for all you went through, both in your personal life and in your, in your combat. Um, what are you doing to keep yourself, you look like you're in good lean shape there. What are you doing to keep yourself in good brain health and good physical health and tips that work for you that others might listen to? Well, I think this, this is a fundamentally important point. You've got to look after your people, but you've also got to look after yourself. Now, I would confess to you that I have been particularly good at doing that over the years. The nature of politics it is a very stressful, very busy, all-consuming environment that swallows you up if you let it. So I think in, in recent times, I, I've tried to carve out some precious time for myself. I've tried to think about my uh, personal health and well-being. I've tried to put in my diary some actual time for me to take exercise and try and keep myself physically fit. And I think as a consequence of, of, of trying to keep myself physically fit with the, run, the odd run here and there, I think that that's had a, a really positive impact on, on, on my mental health. I mean, busy people can very easily be consumed by the work that they do. But the truth of the matter is, in my experience, that you are always more productive, more is a, more effective if you are on occasion able to step back 
uh, and take a bit of quiet time, a bit of time away from, you know, the the sort of the intensity of, of the work that you are doing. And I think not only do you and your family benefit as a consequence from that, the people that you work alongside benefit as well. And that is why it's incredibly important to surround yourself by people who, if possible, are better than you. You know, recruit the best pos possible people. Recruit people that you know that you can delegate to. So you don't feel the need to sign off every single decision, that you can empower those people around you to take some of the pressure away from you, to free yourself up so that you can be able to step back on occasion and you can, can have some time away. You can have a weekend off. You can go on holiday. You can take the opportunity to refresh yourself. So I think it's a, it's a really important point. And, and my experience of having these conversations with other people is that the best leaders will find some time and space to take themselves away, to refresh themselves and to try and ensure that they look after themselves, both in terms of their physical, but also critically important, their mental health as well. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. And it's become for me quite a personal calling to read and study as much of the latest science. Uh, I'm looking down here, I've got a, uh, a continuous glucose monitor, which I'm gonna be putting on the back of my arm not because I'm diabetic, but I wanna know the effect of the foods I eat on my body. I've got wearable technology, whether it be an aura ring or the Apple watch uh, to measure my sleep and how things go. And I think as busy leaders, we need to look after ourselves because our personal performance is massively affected about what we eat, whether we move and whether we sleep, how we breathe and what we focus on, eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus. So I, I really agree with that. I've recently, pretty much become teetotal. I think I, I don't drink in social settings alcohol at all. Uh, and maybe with my wife every once or twice a month, we might have a glass of wine and that's my choice. But I know that the House of Commons and, and the Lords are famed for their drinking culture. You know, what, what are you finding how that affects people's decision-making and their health and well-being? Have you got a view? Well, I mean, the, the culture within the House of Commons is is a bit different from, from how it used to be, but you, you're absolutely right. There is still quite a heavy drinking culture and people will congregate in, in the bars. I mean, that that isn't my approach to these things. I mean, I, I go down there to work and to work as hard as I possibly can. But I think there is something important about, you know, having some fun in your life. You know, what are the things that refresh you and inspire you. Over many years, I, I've become a big supporter of my local youth choir. And you know, the, the, the nature of the work that I do means that often by the time I get to Friday night, I'm, you know, I'm really tired. I've, I, I've put a huge amount of hours. I know that I'm gonna be working over the weekend as well. And going along to listen to my choir sing is, is really uplifting and inspiring. So I think there's something about finding out what are those activities? What are those things that give you the opportunity to you know, let off steam, whether that's going to the football, whether it's going to the theatre or whatever it might be, trying to find a bit of colour in your life? Because, you know, if you're working every hour that God sends, the truth of the matter is you're probably not living well. You're certainly not living your best life. So try and find that that sweet spot between having some sort of work life balance. So, yes, you're committing to your professional activities and you're giving it your all, but you're doing it in a way that is manageable and sustainable for the longer term.
Yeah, very wise. Um, it's it's lovely to to hear that and and how you're. Uh, it's how you allocate your time. It's not how you manage it. We've all got the same amount of hours, but how are you allocating the time and what are you allocating it to? Um, EQ is the next one, Dan. Um, clearly, your ability to build rapport, build um, agreement consensus across different parties, and uh, to listen to people uh, when you're on their doorstep and they're, they're having a go at you personally, but it's actually not your issue, but you're listening to them. So they feel valued and understood what what would be your one top tip on emotional intelligence that you've learned as a as a member of parliament that serves you well i think it's incredibly important certainly in politics that people look at you as being approachable that they look at you as, as being someone that they could come up to in the street and have a conversation with you i mean i, I live this this strange existence that i could be you know, quite literally having a conversation with the Prime Minister or a Secretary of State about matters of state. And then the next conversation that I will have with somebody about parking or dog fouling or whatever it might be. And that is the somewhat eclectic nature of, of, of my professional life. And I think you've got to approach all of those different conversations in the same way with humility. You know, I think all of us have got things to learn from other people. Um, things to learn from people who've been very successful, things to learn from people uh, on the street. Somebody stopped me on the train today and we had a very interesting conversation about a range of, of, of different things. So I think being approachable, but also I think, I think trying to find a way to talk to people that is, is, is engaging. You know, that there's nothing worse than having a conversation with somebody and finding their eyes dart around the room because you're at an event and they're looking for somebody more important or more interesting that so takes me back to the army and those ghastly cocktail parties you and i were at where <laughs> you saw someone talk to you and they're looking over your shoulder for a more senior officer who will help their career and you just think i don't exist i'm actually invisible to them. they're not really interested um and and time and again um, I, I think I, you and I were talking earlier, I've just come back from a leadership retreat in the Andes in Machu Picchu, uh, which is all around sort of plant-based medicine and being more present. And, and it really reminded me about the power of really being with somebody when you're with them. And, uh, you know, you went and received your MBE, I went and received mine. And I still remember to this day, my 90 seconds to two minutes I had with Queen Elizabeth the first. Uh, the second, should I quickly add, that's not that old. Um, and, but how present she was. And she'd learned to breathe. She had no earpiece whispering, saying, this is Jonathan and this is what he's done. But she had a great conversation with me, knew what I'd got it for. I, that is a real skill. Uh, and I think you have great presence. I, I sense that in our earlier conversation today. Hang on to it. It's really important. And never forget how you make people feel. They'll, People forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never, Dan, forget how you make them feel. And I, I, I just wish that for you. Um, CQ is the next one, uh, what we call cultural intelligence, that ability to get on with people who are very different to you. And uh, whether we laughed about the people that you met when you went to Sandhurst uh, or the people that you meet talking about dog fouling or whether you're meeting Boris or talking to other people, diversity, equality, inclusion, and and treating, being able to walk with kings and talk to the common man. 
as Kipling would talk about. Uh, what's your top tip on diversity, equality, inclusion that served you well as a member of parliament? Well, I think um, both as a member of parliament and in my previous life in the armed forces, that the nature of those worlds brings you into contact with lots of different people. I mean, I remember being in Afghanistan, working very close, closely with Afghan soldiers, culturally very different, you know, different value sets, different approaches to the world. And I think what you have to do quite quickly is develop a sense of understanding and an empathy for the lives that they live and an affinity for them. And actually very quickly in Afghanistan, we were able to develop really very close bonds of trust. I mean, I bridge back to the, the point uh, around humility, a kind of an acceptance and an understanding that there are lots of amazing people out there from different backgrounds and actually embracing the opportunity to engage and work closely alongside people who are different from you people who have different experiences. I, I think that that's a really exciting um, opportunity. And actually, I think if you manage that in the right way, you know, your experience, your team can be hugely improved by people who think about things in a different way to yourself. I mean, there's nothing worse than kind of interacting with a, an organization where everybody looks, sounds and feels mm. the same. Mm. You know, I, I think having that, that diversity, both in terms of background also in, in mindset it, it is really important so so certainly when i'm looking to employ people uh, i'm wanting people who've got complementary sets of skills and experiences to myself yeah. so I, i'm not looking for mini me's i'm not looking for people who've done what i've done or who, who think what i think i'm looking for people who've got a, a different perspective of the world and then crucially and this is a really important point I want those people to challenge my worldview. Mm. So I want to empower them and I want to make sure that they've got the confidence, even if I'm you know, the boss, to, to challenge what I'm saying and actually offer alternative views and different perspectives. And I think if you can get that in the right way, that, that is incredibly useful and helpful. Yeah, I can't agree more. And you know, uh, growing up in Barnsley for you, Halifax for me, uh, I was talking to a, a future podcast get, guest, Zeb Pervez, who is a managing director of uh, a textile business in, in West Yorkshire, uh, and now property portfolio. But uh, family originally came from Pakistan, uh, his grandfather's generation. Uh, and we were talking about my best friend at school when I was at Crossley Porters Grammar School in Halifax was Mohammed. And, and he was the only Pakistani in our class. And, and I was I was ridiculed for being his friend, but I chose to be his friend because that's what my mother brought us up on, that you judge people by who they are as a character, not their background or whether they're like you. And I, I, I do feel this is really important that we have to stop um, being with people just like us, because otherwise we get very blinkered. Um, I, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And look, as a politician, uh, I have to sort of choose my words very carefully. So, so I will try and do that. But, but you and I come from a background where much of the professional contact we had was with men. You know, it, it, there were no women in, in my regiment. Uh, and certainly when you're in Afghanistan, things are slightly different now. The, the army's changed a bit and there are different bits of the army that are now open 
uh, for women to serve in them in the way that that was not the case when when you and I joined. But certainly, my professional experience in the parachute regiment was almost entirely serving alongside men. Now, clearly, thankfully, that is not the case in public life um, and, and and in politics. And you know, I, I have to say. Um, my experience of working with women in politics is that, you know, more often than not, they are actually much better than men for a number of reasons. But I think the, the, the thing that, that, that I have really come to appreciate is, is their toughness. You know, I say this as someone who's so very closely with, with paratroopers in very difficult circumstances in Afghanistan. But there are some extraordinary women serving in public life mm, mm. who are hugely courageous, who are really inspiring, who put up with a lot more than I have to put up because there's something about the nature of our society, which means that people are sadly much more likely to step forward and criticize a woman than they would somebody like me. But actually working closely with, with, with women in, in, from across the political spectrum has been a, a wonderful privilege uh, and, and it has been, you know, such, such a great experience for me to, to be able to do that in a way that I wasn't in my time in the military. Mm, no, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. My wife, uh, as well as being a leadership coach like me and a, a broadcaster, is is also she's the CEO of a charity for vulnerable girls who've gone through abuse, modern day slavery, trafficking, mental health issues uh, through the Inspiring Leadership Trust, a charity. And, and, and you know, there's some really um, courageous women out there who are dealing with some very difficult circumstances, county lines, uh, serious organized crime, and they're having to get out of that environment. That takes great courage to escape from that or from abusive situations, um, which actually takes one to resilience, which is the, the, uh, the last three, resilience, brand, and legacy. Um, top tip on resilience, bouncing back from adversity, Dan, that you'd give that work for you that might help other people. Well, I don't in any way mean this in a flippant sense, but I think the important thing about resilience is, is having it. So this is a conversation that I have with lots of people in, in the context of schools, because I, I think for young people in particular, developing their resilience is an absolutely critical life skill. The, the truth of the matter is, and you, know, you and I have, have had a lot of experience over this uh, over the years, things don't always go to plan. No, it doesn't always go your way. The reality is that you go out into the big wide world, you're gonna to have to take the knocks. And, and, and sometimes you get rejected and things don't work out and stuff happens. And you just gotta to learn to cope with it. You've got to learn to dust yourself down and get back up and go again the next day. So I think resilience is a hugely important quality in whatever life you are in. I think, as I say, it's particularly important for young people to sort of develop that sense that it won't always go their way. And sometimes they'll make mistakes, they'll embarrass themselves, they'll be furious that they've got things wrong or things haven't gone their way. But, but that, is, that is life, that is how yeah. things are. And you've just got to maintain that sort of determination that you're gonna get up again and you're gonna go forward. So resilience, I think, is, is one of those things that you've got to kind of develop, you've got to kind of, You've got to learn about the importance of, of, of dusting yourself down. And I think that that is important life skill for younger people, but for the rest of us as well. Yeah. And in your book, Long Way Home, uh, resilience was the key message that came through for me. 
Um, and, and it's a fine balance, the resilience. My own experience and when I've seen people break themselves is that they've pushed their resilience too far and they've almost broken their health mentally or physically. So it, it's, a fine, it's a fine line. Um, the last two before we talk about executive teams, your favorite book and then the top tip is um, brand. Um, now, 360, I, I do 360 feedback with all the CEOs that I coach and their top teams. Uh, and it's very revealing how they see themselves versus how everybody else sees them, 20 other people. And I do telephone interviews with them as well. You could say that in politics, you always got 360 because people are voting for you. But actually, that's a slightly different thing. When, when the 360 I'm talking about is your leadership qualities and how you can improve them and what you can enhance and what they admire in you. And they don't go into that kind of finite details. Either do they vote for you or do they not? So, so have you come across politicians or have you yourself sought 360 feedback with a coach and have you ever learned from it? Is that something you've ever done? Yes. So I think, I, again, I draw on my experience in the military where having conducted an operation, there would be a very frank and open conversation about how it went. Did it go well? Did it go badly? How was my performance as the leader? What could I have done better? What could I do better next time? And I think done in the right way, that is an incredibly constructive exercise to work through. So in public life and in politics, you're, you're not sure of, of feedback. You know, I open the, you know, the letters page of the local newspaper every Friday morning, and there is always feedback for me, good and bad. Go onto social media, there's lots of feedback. Walk through the town centre, people will stop me and say, oh, you know, why didn't you do this? Or I thought you did this well, or I thought you did this badly. And perhaps there's something in the nature of, uh, about Yorkshire people that they are very straight talking and they tell you what they think. And, and that is a really good thing. But I think the other element of this, and I alluded to it earlier, is the importance of surrounding yourself with people who are not yes men or women. I think it's not a good thing you know, to have people who will say that you're brilliant even if you, you weren't. What you need is a relationship with your team whereby you get prepared and you get yourself ready to do whatever it is that you're going to do. But then the other side of it, you have a very honest, frank conversation about how it's gone. And if it's gone well, that's fine. Enjoy it and celebrate it. But if it hasn't, you know, draw out the positives, but do so in a way that has allowed your staff, your team to, to be empowered, to be critical. You know, I thought you could have done better in this area. Mm -hmm. Think about doing that. And I think that is a really constructive way in which you can kind of sort of test and adjust how you do things with a view to improving them over the long term. So I think we've all you know, got to have you know, that, that confidence in ourselves to let others you know, not, not lump off us, metaphorically speaking, be open and honest about our failings and our shortcomings and be positive in, in looking at how we can improve for the future. And you know, that is the approach that I've always taken and that's the approach that I you know, intend to take in the future. Yeah, it's a, it's a, really, good, a really good attitude. Um, legacy is the, the last of the eight components before we go into teams. Um, what would you like, uh, in a sentence, what would you like your legacy to be? Aside from your two daughters and your son and, and your wife, Rachel, what would you like your legacy to be? You know, the stewardship of leaving things better than you found it. Well, it's a fascinating question. And on the one hand, I, I think you, perhaps you'll understand why, why I might say, 
I don't feel that I'm at the point that I want to think too seriously and deeply about that because I hope, I've got my fingers crossed here, I hope that there is much more to do and I hope that there are many things that I'll be able to point to downstream that I've been able to do. So um, much done, much still to do. I think I've not spoken a huge amount about being the mayor. You know, I, I was the mayor of a city region during the most serious global health pandemic in our lifetime. And that's been an extraordinarily challenging and draining um, experience. I hope that, that people will, will look at my performance over that period. And if nothing else, if nothing else, I hope that they will think that I did my best and that I gave everything that I could over that particular period in time. So. Perhaps it's not an especially grand um, legacy to have, but that I did my best, or at the very least, I tried to do my best, would be something that I would be pretty satisfied um, as, as having as a legacy. But I hope that there are many other things that I'll be able to do and have the opportunity to do. So we're not quite at that point, but if you could have made me say what it was, that people would look at me and I hope thought that I'd given it my all and that I'd done my best, and I'd be pretty happy with that. I think you, you definitely have from all that I've read uh, and congratulations on that. What are the things you have to do, not only as the mayor, uh, when you were the mayor of South Yorkshire, but as, also as an MP, is get teams working around you. Some who don't work for you, you have to just influence and persuade them without the power over them. But clearly with tough going parachute regiment soldiers and other special forces people working for you, and even Afghan soldiers, who really their loyalty was to their tribal chief and not to you, but you wanted to get them to help you to help their own country. What have you done when you've got a toxic team and how have you turned it around? What robust action did you take to get it from toxic to high performing? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. Look, let, let's be honest about the fact that sometimes if you're dealing with a situation such as that, where that is the environment, you know, sometimes you, you, you have to get rid of people. <laughs> sometimes you have to take tough decisions that actually you've got people in particular appointments and whatever you do, it, it just isn't gonna work. And you have to find a way to manage that transition. Ultimately though, I think it's about making sure that everybody has a, a sense of, of having a stake in what it is that you're trying to do and that actually they want to be a part of it, they believe in it, and they want to commit to, to the process. There's this great story which you will have heard and, and lots of people will have heard, which I don't know whether it's apocryphal or whether it is true. I hope it's true that, that, that a US president was, was visiting NASA and, and, and spoke to somebody who was, um, who was a cleaner at NASA. And, and the question, you know, the famous question was, what is it that you're doing here? And the response that came back from the cleaner was, I'm putting a man or a woman on the moon. And I, I don't know whether that is strictly true or not, whether that is that is a bit of a myth or whether that did in fact happen. But whether it did or whether it did, didn't, I think it's a really important lesson for me because it, it's about having everybody in the organisation from the bottom to the top and all of the people in between feeling as if they're a part of it, feeling as if that they have a stake and that their, their view and their contribution really is valued and makes a difference. 
Uh, in politics, often you're operating with quite small teams. You know, I think people sometimes think we've got lots and lots of people. Often you're dealing with quite a small group. Um, as the mayor, I had a bigger team, but the same approach I, I applied. And, and it, it's about, firstly, you know, being very careful about recruitment. You know, the really important decisions that you make are about finding the right people. So have a rigorous recruitment process so that you get the right people in the first place. But then making sure when you've assembled the right people that they're a part of it, that they have that 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 shared sense of endeavour, and that they want to work with you, they want to support you, they want to be you know, part of what it is that you're trying to do. And I think if you can get that team spirit, then that will get you a long way down the track of achieving whatever it is you want to achieve. Oh no, I love that. And penultimate question. Uh, your favourite book on leadership and why people should read it? What what made it a, a good book that they could learn from? Well, I'm not sure that politicians are particularly good at this, but I, I believe in the importance of succession planning. Mm. I believe in the importance of, of bringing people on and up through the organisation, spotting talent. You know, who are the bright sparks who, with the right mentoring, the right support, can overtake you or take your job or go on to do amazing things and I think the army was quite good at that in terms of promoting talent and, and being a true meritocracy and there was somebody um, who was uh, junior to me in, in my bit of the army who I always thought was very impressive he was called Langley Sharp and he took over oh yes I, I met Langley yeah yeah so, Langley Sharp is 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 an impressive leader and was uh, doing an important leadership role at Sandhurst, mm -hmm. running the Army Amazing. Leadership Centre. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. In that particular role, he wrote a book, and this is quite an unusual thing, as you will know, for people who are serving within the military. He wrote an excellent book called The Habit of Excellence. And what Langley, I thought, successfully was able to do, because let's be honest, there's a lot of theories about leadership. There's a lot of different views, there's a lot of different approaches. But Langley was very successfully able to distill in his book, The Habit of Excellence, some really interesting, engaging and thoughtful ideas about how you can be a leader, not, not just in the military. You know, the, the lessons were much wider across the civilian world, both the private and the public sector as well. So in order to, um, to support Langley uh, and in order to draw attention to what I think is an excellent piece of work, my recommendation would be The Habit of Excellence by Lieutenant Colonel Landy Shaw. I shall definitely read it. Thank you. And I hope he's done an audio version and I'll, I'll even listen to that as well. So, um, Dan, we're now on to the final, the very final couple of minutes. Um, if you'd kind of introduce yourself and, and what you do um, and uh, share with us your top two minute practical leadership tip for other people to listen to. Well, I'm Dan Jarvis. I'm a member of Parliament. Until very recently, I was also a mayor. And for 15 years before that, I had the great privilege of serving in the army, in the parachute regiment, in a number of different places around the world. I think above all else, the thing that I have learned is about the importance of resilience. The world in which we operate, whether that's the military or the civilian world, can be very tough. You know, however well prepared you are, However good you are at what you do, you will experience tough times and you won't always get it right and you will make mistakes. So I think having that resilience 
that sense of being able to pick yourself up and dust yourself down when things don't go your way. I think that that is incredibly important. And, you know, if you want to be successful in life, if you want to get things done, you will face all sorts of opportunities and challenges along the way. But my experience tells me that if you try and remain calm, if you keep going and where you can, keep a smile on your face, that that will set you up to do great things. I, on many occasions, uh, when things have not been going well, the thing that I've always decided uh, to do just to help me out was put the kettle on, make a cup of tea, step back from the situation, have that cup of tea, have that moment and assess where I've got to and what it is that I need to do next. But I think having that sense of resilience and knowing that there will be a brighter tomorrow, I think that that is a, a pretty good way to, to approach your life. Fantastic. Well, Dan Jarvis, MBE, MP, thank you very much indeed. I think the country is very fortunate to have you serving it. And I hope you go on from strength to strength and they recognize your talents and put you in greater leadership positions in the coming years. We'd be very well served by you. Dan, thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a great privilege. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.